If you have your Bible with you this morning, turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We'll spend our time together this morning in James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Once you've found it, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for the songs that we sang this morning. That we have had an opportunity to worship You in song and in prayer. And we ask now that as we enter into the time of worship through preaching, that You would help me to worship You through all that I say and do. Lord, would You, by the power of Your Spirit, apply Your Word to our lives to make us more like Your Son. To transform us away from the image of the world and into the image of Your Son. So that You would get all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In a study performed by the University of Arizona, it is estimated that people speak approximately 16,000 words per day. 16,000 words per day. While this number can largely vary uh, depending upon gender, education, career path, and the language that we speak, this serves as a good estimate of uh, people speak on average 16,000 words per day. And this means that since the average adult fiction novel has an estimate of 50,000 words, we could all write two books each totaling about 200 pages per week if what we spoke were recorded and published. But if we're honest with ourselves, we would be embarrassed if much of what we say on a daily basis were ever published for the world to see. And yet we say things with our mouths every single day that we ought not to say. It was Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, 
who said that it takes a lifetime to build character, but a moment to lose it. It takes a lifetime to build a character of being one who does not speak the way that the world speaks, but it takes only one slip of the tongue to slip back into the character that people thought we once had of speaking just like the world. And James here in verses 1-12 through of James chapter 3 will speak to us on speech. He will speak to us on what it means to speak as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. If we have been bought by the blood of Christ, then we're not going to speak the same way we used to. The four-letter words that we used to use aren't going to be in our vocabulary anymore. Because God has done something in us and we will speak the way that God speaks in His Word and not the way that the world speaks outside. And so James is going to tell us what our speech should look like if we have been bought by the blood of Christ. And there are two points that I want us to see in this passage. First, is that our speech is an indication of direction. Our speech is an indication of direction. It tells us where we're going. It tells us where we're headed. The second thing that I want us to note is that our speech can be an ignition of destruction. It can be an ignition of destruction. It can ignite destruction. Our first point, an an indication of direction. Who you are as a person. That is, what is residing in the deepest recesses of your being is written on your tongue. If you want to see what is within the heart, the mouth is a window into the heart. You can look into the mouth of a person and see what is within them, what is within their heart. The way a person speaks is very telling about what they believe. The way a person speaks is very telling about what a person thinks about you as a person and about the world. It it tells you their worldview. There's an old saying that says, what is down in the well must come up in the bucket. If you put a bucket down into a well down into a freshwater well, you would not expect to draw the bucket back up and find within it Diet Coke or sweet tea. You'd find within the bucket what's down within the well, which would be water. And if you put a bucket down within the heart of man and draw it up into the mouth of man, it's going to bring up what's down within the heart. In the same way, what pours out from the mouth flows from whatever resides in the heart. Just as cats don't bark like dogs and chickens don't roar like lions, neither does a true blood-bought, Savior-redeemed, alive-in-Christ, mature Christian speak like the world. A true believer just does not speak the way the world speaks. And if we pay close enough attention anymore, it's very obvious that there's no gray area. It's very obvious to us that there's no such thing as neutrality. If you watch the news for five minutes, you see that the world speaks a certain way. You see that the, teaching, the teachers will say certain things that are not fitting of Christians. And there are two things that James uses, two illustrations that he gives us here. Beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And so what James is doing there is he's using a hyperbolic statement, a statement that is above and beyond the expectation. 
In other words, what he's saying is if anyone is able to uh, tame his tongue, if anyone is able to speak perfectly in and of his own strength, then he is a perfect man. And we know very simply from texts such as Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, we know that there is not such a thing as a perfect man apart from the work of Christ. It is Christ alone who is perfect. And all the rest of us are fallen sinners. And so what James is saying here is that none of us are perfect people. None of us have yet, uh, yet attained perfection in regards to how we speak. And so we need to be taught again and again how we are to speak. We need to be reminded often that our speech is not to be like the world. And so James is essentially saying, hey, I don't care if you're a baby Christian. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years. You need to still be reminded of what I'm going to tell you here. And then he goes on in James chapter 3, verse 3. Now, now that I've said that, now that I've made it clear that I'm speaking to everyone, now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Now, a horse bit is not the piece around the horse's mouth and head. The exposed piece that we commonly see when we look at a racehorse is the bridle. But the bridle is connected to a small metal piece that fits within the mouth of a horse, which is called the bit. The bit is the mechanism that is used to steer the horse. As you pull on the reins and you pull one way or the other, it pulls on that bit which digs into the nerves that are within the horse's mouth to tell it which direction to go. So if you pull on the right, it, uh, it bites down into the right side of the horse's nerves in the mouth to force the horse to go right in the same way to go left. The bit is the small piece placed directly within the horse's mouth to tell it where to go. The bit essentially serves as a turning signal for the horse. And in much the same way, the tongue gives an indication as to which way you're going. It tells the world which direction you're going. If you're spending all your time gossiping about others that you claim to love, that's a pretty good indication that you weren't as loving as you claim to be. You're headed down the pathway of hatred and bitterness. If you sit around the table telling the same jokes as all the other guys in the workplace and laughing at all the same jokes as all the other guys in the workplace, you're headed down the pathway of unrighteousness. If you rarely ever use your words to encourage and build others up, then you're facing the direction of uselessness. And the way that we speak tells us and others where we're headed. It tells us what direction we're going in. And if our mouth is saying the same things as the world, we know that our direction is the direction of hell. That we are headed into the very gates of hell where God's judgment will rest upon us forever. And some people get hell wrong. They think that hell is where we face the eternal absence of God, but that's not the case. It is not as though the devil is down in hell ruling with a pitchfork, as though he has his own throne in hell as God does in heaven. As though the devil were simply the bad version of God. That's not the case. Hell is not the absence of God, but it is the absence of God's grace. The absence of God's mercy. Hell is the presence of God's eternal wrath upon sin and sinners. And if we speak like the world, if our tongue is, as James will say later on in this passage, set on fire by hell, then we're headed the direction of hell. 
And this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, as we considered last week in regards to teachers in James 3, verse 1, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, that we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. And the psalmist says in Psalm 1, 1, that blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So in other words, happy is the man or blessed is the man who doesn't do the same things as the world. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't, who doesn't take what's right and wrong from the world, but takes what's right and wrong from the Word. Blessed is the man who doesn't listen to the things that the world tells him. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the path of sinners, who's not walking that direction. Blessed is the man who's not going that way anymore. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is the one who no longer sits in the back pew mocking the Christians in front of him, but instead is, jo- is joining them in worship. The second thing that James tells us is that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. Look at verse 4 with me. James chapter 3, verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Unlike the propeller of a boat or of a ship, which moves and gives power to the machine, the rudder gives it direction. The rudder is the small piece under the ship that will direct the pathway of the boat. And though very small in comparison to the Lord's ship, to which the rudder is attached, the rudder is what guides the entire body of the boat. The pilot or the captain turns the wheel and tells the rudder which way to turn. And so the boat turns that way. And simply put, if the rudder is broken, the boat is going to have no sense of direction. If the rudder is broken and is torn off, then you're not going to be able to direct the boat and steer it where to go. You're going to get in the boat and try to turn the wheel and it's just going to keep on turning, but the boat won't turn with it. And in the same way, if the tongue is broken, if the tongue is stained by sinfulness, if the tongue is stained by worldliness, then you're not going to be able to go the right direction. You're going to go the wrong way if the tongue is speaking the wrong way. James here personifies the tongue. In other words, James speaks as though the tongue has a life of its own as though the tongue were an active agent of its own. Look in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, James tells us that the tongue has the power to direct us. It has the power to tell us or to indicate to us which direction we're headed. In verse 5, he'll say that the tongue can start fires of destruction. In verse 6, James says that the tongue defiles the body or makes us dirty. In verses 7 and 8, he'll tell us that the tongue must be tamed. That the tongue is like a wild animal and it must be tamed, it must be controlled, it must be managed. And all of what James is saying here is to remind us of one simple truth. That there is no such thing as neutrality. We are not born neutral. We are not born free from any outside influence. We are not born without a ruler. In Romans chapters 5 and 6, we're told that we're either going to be ruled by the devil or we're going to be ruled by Christ. We're either going to be ruled and managed by the world or we're going to be ruled and managed by the Word. And our tongue will indicate who our ruler is. Our tongue will tell the world who we serve. I'll not read it all this morning, 
But in Romans chapter 1, we're told that we are inclined to love sin. In Romans chapter 2, we're told that our sin earns wrath. In Romans chapter 3, we're told that we have all sinned. In Romans chapter 4, we're told that our works can't save us from the sin that we've all committed against God. In Romans chapter 5, we're told that sin brought death along with it. That sin walked hand in hand with death to the front door of our life. In Romans chapter 6, we're told that we are either bound by sin or bound by Christ. In Romans chapter 7, we're told that even after we're saved, we still struggle and fight with sin. And then in Romans chapter 8, we're told that we can find in Christ, we can find in the work and person of Jesus Christ, salvation from all the sin that we've committed. Romans chapters 1 through 7 set up just how sinful we are. They give us the bad news. They tell us just how desperately we need Christ. Romans 1 through 7 remind us of, uh, remind us of the reality that our tongues are set on fire by hell. And then Romans 8 says, Therefore, now, those who are in Christ have no condemnation. And then James here in, Ch- in James chapter 3 is reminding us that our tongues are not naturally under control. We do not naturally and organically have everything under control as we think we do. So often we think, I've got this all under control. I've got my tongue under control. I've got my body under control. I've got my eyes under control. I've got my ears under control. Everything in my life is under my control. I've graduated from needing the gospel. But what James is reminding us of here, and he says it in verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. But what James is reminding us of here is that no one on this side of glory is perfect. No one on this side of heaven has yet attained perfection. And so we all need to be reminded of the need for sanctification. We all need to be reminded of just how dangerous the tongue can be. If you don't think that your tongue is dangerous, start just spouting off everything you think to everyone you see. And see if it doesn't get you punched really quickly. If you think the tongue isn't dangerous, start saying everything that you want to say to your spouse. And see how loving your spouse is to you for the next couple of days. The tongue is a dangerous thing. And it reveals to others and to ourselves what is within us. Our tongue is a window into the heart. Our tongue tells us what is down within the heart. Suppose that I stood up here one Sunday morning. And I told you that I was a professional athlete. I told you that I was the best baseball player you've ever seen. And then you said, okay, we'll, we'll believe him. We'll believe him. We'll, we'll take him out to the diamond and see how he plays. And we get out on the diamond and I tell you, oh, I'm just like Babe Ruth. I'm the best baseball player ever. And I get out there, I step up to the plate, the pitcher steps up to the mound, and the pitcher throws one fastball straight down the lane. Swing and a miss. You say, oh, maybe it was just a whiff. Maybe he'll get the second one. The second one is a slower fastball. It's a 50 mile per hour ball. Anyone could hit it. Right down the lane. I miss again. The third one comes right down the lane. And by the third pitch, you're thinking, oh, this guy isn't really telling me the truth. This guy isn't really the best baseball player ever. He could have hit those first two. And then the third one comes. And I miss it again. 
Now, your thought in the back of your mind is not, hey, he really is the best baseball player ever. Did you see that? He missed all three of them. Good job. Round of applause. Standing ovation. That's not what's going to happen. That's not what's going to happen that day at the ball field. Instead, you're going to think he was a fraud. He said one thing, but he truly is another. And if we're coming to church singing, oh, how I love Jesus on Sunday, but then as soon as service is over, we get out on the, in the parking lot and we talk about how much we hate the people who were within the church, we don't really love Jesus as we said we did. Our tongue is saying one thing, but our heart is telling another. And that will come out. Our sin will find us out. The tongue is not a very good keeper of secrets. The tongue is a tattletale. The tongue will tell on you quicker than anyone else ever would because the tongue knows what's within the heart. So we need to keep a very close watch on our speech, and here's why. Look at verses 6 through 12. Verses 5 through 12. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So what James is telling us here is our second point, that the tongue is an ignition of destruction. The tongue can absolutely destroy those around us. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but whoever said that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, obviously never heard some harsh words. Because words can hurt. Words can do some serious damage. Words can destroy. Words can divide. And that's why James is reminding us here, in the context of his letter that is written to the church, he's speaking to church people, that we need to, get a t- we need to tame our tongue. And if we're honest... Sometimes it's church people who need to know this the most. Sometimes it's the person who's been in church for decades who needs to be reminded the most of just how hurtful their words can be. And James tells us here that although the tongue is very small, verse 5, although the tongue is very small, just a few inches and set within the mouth, although it's very small, it can breed destruction. It can destroy the church. If you want to see the church divided, unlike ever before, start with gossip. If you want to see this generation be the last to walk through the doors of the church house, start backbiting and bickering with one another. If you want to see the church lose its power and witness and all of its forward movement for the gospel of Christ, start saying the very same things that the world is saying. That's a very good place to start if you want to see the church destroyed. But if you want to see the church do well, if you want to see the church built up, if you want to see the church encouraged, go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the first thing of our speech is we ought not to lie. We ought to tell the truth to one another. 
Verse 26, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not, let, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So if you want to see the church grow, if you want to see the pews beside of you filled up, stop gossiping, stop backbiting and bickering, and start instead with building up one another. Start instead with telling each other, hey, I love you and I'm glad to see you. I love you and I'm glad to see you and I want to encourage you this morning. That is how we show the love of Christ to those around us. And what James tells us in James chapter 3 is that we all need to be reminded of just how dangerous the tongue is. And here's the sad thing. If we turn on the news, we're not going to find news stories of how the church down the road has been encouraging each other and building each other up. We're not going to turn on the news and find out about the VBS salvations that took place at the church down the road. Instead, when we turn on the news, what we're going to find about if the, church, if the, if the world is reporting on the, on the church, we're going to find that the, new, the news reports the story of the pastor who was found committing adultery. We're going to find out about the megachurch pastor who was found guilty of embezzlement. And what we're told by that is that the world is watching if we're always bickering with one another, if we're always at each other's throats and saying things that discourage each other, then what we're going to find is that the world will be very quickly, very quick to report of it. The neighbors around us, the community around us will be very quick to know that we're a church that doesn't love each other as we say we do. And so James here reminds us that the tongue can destroy. The tongue can Destroy. Verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The tongue is dangerous. And what we're told here looks very hopeless and helpless. James says that no one can tame the tongue. James says that you can't get a hold of your tongue. James tells us that we can't make ourselves say things that aren't truly down within the heart. And so if we leave it there, it seems very hopeless and helpless. It seems as though we should just throw our hands up and say, well, I can't tame my tongue, so I'm just going to let it fly. James says that I can't really get a handle on it, so I'm just going to start spewing out the poison that, that James says is within my tongue. I don't really care. But that's not the point. The point of what James is telling us here is that you alone can't tame your tongue. I alone cannot tame my tongue of my own power. I can't put the handcuffs on my tongue to hold it where I want it to be all on my own. And what we're reminded of there is that we need someone else to come into our lives and clean up our speech. We need someone else to come into our lives and do something that we can't do for ourselves. Namely, the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
We need Jesus to save us from our sin. We need Jesus to save us from our own tongue, from our own speech. And oftentimes what I hear today when I turn on the television and hear televangelists speak, it says, oh, we just need salvation from poverty. We need salvation from people who dislike us. We need salvation from all of these other things. But what James is telling us here is that we need salvation from ourselves. We need salvation from what is within us. We need salvation from our own sin. We need salvation from our own wickedness. We need salvation from our own evil. And we can't save ourselves from it all. We cannot do it. So what James, the very half-brother, remember, of Jesus Christ Himself, is saying, is, hey, I can't do this on my own. I have to look to my brother. And you can't do this on your own. You have to look to my brother. Look to Jesus. Look to the Messiah. Look to the Savior. Because no one can tame the tongue on their own. Look at verses 9 through 12. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness or the image of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. You can feel and sense the heartache in James. As James looks around the church, he sees that there are people who are using their tongues for destruction rather than for building up. And he says, oh, my brethren, dear church, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't go that way. And the reality is, as I've said so many times before, that I've been so encouraged here at Mount Carmel. You people here at Mount Carmel have been such an encouragement. You've been so loving and so welcoming to everyone, not just to our family, but to all the visitors who have come in. And that's such an encouragement. But I get the sense here that James is saying, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And in saying that, James is saying, starting with me, starting with my own speech, we cannot go this direction. And so this word this morning is as much for me as it is for you, if not more so for me than for you. That our speech as a church, my speech as the one who's behind the pulpit, must be seasoned with grace and seasoned with love. Because if it's not, then we'll find very quickly that we will destroy the church. Verse 11. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. What James is telling us here is that we cannot be lukewarm. In Revelation chapter 3, John the Revelator speaks that God is speaking to the church at Laodicea and says, I have spewed you out of my mouth because you are lukewarm. You are neither hot or cold. You're somewhere in the middle. You can't decide whether or not you're going to follow me or follow the world, and so I've spewed you out of my mouth. 
And the very same thing in 1 Kings 18 at the worship service that takes place at Mount Carmel when all of the people are there and worshiping their false gods. Elijah comes along and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to keep limping between two opinions? Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the one true and living God who has been been displayed here on Mount Carmel? Or are you going to keep serving the false gods who you've been serving all this time? And what James here is saying is that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot have both fresh water and salt water come out of our mouth. We cannot have both blessing to God and cursing to God come out of the very same mouth. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, one of the Ten Commandments says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now certainly this verse, this commandment, can be understood to mean that we should not swear by the name of God. We should not use God's name in a derogatory manner as so many people on television and people in the community do today. That we should not say, oh my, and use God's name in vain. That we should not use God's name in a derogatory way. That certainly means that. But it also means this. This commandment charges us to remember that the name of the Lord is holy. And as we preached several sermons ago in Isaiah chapter 6, the name of the Lord is not just holy, it is holy, holy, holy. It is holy to the third degree that God's name is the holiest of holies, that God's name is perfect, that God's name ought to be glorified and sanctified and honored. And so if we who take on the name of God, who say that we are Christians, that we are followers of Christ, if we say we're followers of Christ and yet speak like the world, then we're taking His name in vain. We're making His name void of what it means because His name means that He is holy. And if we say that we're followers of the One who is holy and yet we ourselves are not holy, yet we ourselves are speaking as the world, then we are making His name void. We are taking His name in vain. But a Christian will not make void the name of God. A Christian will not say that He is one thing and make a mockery of the very same thing that He claims to be. But a Christian will live according to the Word of God. A Christian will be holy for He is holy. And just in case you think I'm backwoods, old-fashioned, or legalistic because that's quoting from the Old Testament in Leviticus 11.44, be reminded that the very same text of be holy for I the Lord your God am holy is mentioned by Peter at the end of the Bible in the New Testament when Peter is preaching his sermon to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, remember, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. This isn't Old Testament Scripture. This isn't old-fashioned preaching. This isn't legalistic preaching. And if you think it is, then okay. But this is New Testament preaching that we are called to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. We are called to be sanctified. We are called to be like Jesus. And one of the ways that we can be like Jesus, James reminds us here, is to speak like Jesus. And Jesus didn't cuss. Jesus didn't take the name of His Father in vain. Jesus didn't ridicule and mock His followers. And so if you are truly a follower of Jesus, you won't do those things either. 
as we come to a close this morning and ask our musicians to come forward. Let me close in reading Dr. John MacArthur. It's very popular today to say you believe in Jesus and you trust in Jesus. You might be a homosexual politician and say Jesus is your Savior. You find this everywhere. You might be a pastor who says Jesus is your Savior and then people find out you've been living in adultery multiple times. And you register that to God's grace and mercy on your behalf. You can almost live any kind of life today. You can almost live any kind of life and if you say you believe in Jesus, that would qualify you as a Christian. But true Christians are transformed people. They are transformed people. They are made righteous. And they manifest that righteousness and are commanded to continually manifest more of that righteousness. You have love. You need more love. You have virtue. You need more virtue. And so forth. So I would say this morning, you're doing well. I hear you encouraging one another. I hear the love that the church has for one another. Now let's have more. Let's have more of that. Let's pray that God would would do a work in us to help us not become complacent with what we have, but to say, God, make me more loving today. And if you don't yet know Christ as your Savior, pray that God would do a mighty work of cleaning up your life, beginning with your speech. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have given us a model in your Son of how we are to speak and of what we are to say to one another. And we ask that you would help us to speak in love and grace and truth to one another in all of our conversations and in everything we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.